0: Morning, everyone. It's it's been a while since I've spoken. It was about to be a longer while. Um, We had a brother uh, from South Carolina get rescheduled so that I could uh, give the first lesson I've given in like three weeks, I think. Um, But we haven't had our lesson on Elijah and Elisha this month, so that's what we're going to be looking at in 2 Kings chapter 3. If you want to turn there. Um, we're going to be looking at Israel's wrath against Moab, specifically how God um, gave Israel a victory that um, just all of the events in Second Kings 3 are very unusual, which only makes the lessons and just everything involved um, really that much more powerful uh, because of just the nature of how unexpected everything is. Uh, before we get more into that, though, so um, the La Chapelle's are here, and um, Cody's going to be leading a, um, like a younger person Bible study here at the building on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, and uh, especially if, if you're not used to coming here for the Bible study period um, and you're of that age, um, we really want to just invest more into you and um, just want you to be aware that like we're, we're striving to make efforts to um, be involved. Uh, so Cody will be leading that, that study if anyone's able to make it at that time. Um, so I'd encourage you to be uh, considering, considering that. Um, so Second Kings chapter 3, I'm going to do some front-loading um, into the context just to kind of get us into the events a little bit more. Um, I haven't put up this slide in a while, but just remember that uh, all of these events really tie into promises that God had been progressively fulfilling since the time of Abraham. And really you could trace them back farther, but Abraham really became the man where God really started making specific covenantal promises with that really thread through history leading to Jesus, the exodus was about four hundred and thirty years from the time of Abraham, and then the time to Solomon was about four hundred and fifty more years and then really where we are in second Kings three is about eighty years from the time of Solomon approximately so may not be not may not be exact, but that's kind of the time frame we're looking at and and obviously the Time frame that would um, be after this, the most significant event would be the destruction of the entire kingdom, both Israel and Judah. Eventually, Israel with Assyria and Babylon with Judah, and then the remnants would return, and that would be the the rebuilt Jerusalem that Jesus would eventually enter into. But there's in the time frame here, really God is teaching lessons of His glory that typify that that shadow Jesus and our relationship to the Lord in these ways that are just really incredible to pay attention to as we read these events, which in the first slide, you know, the the main title of the series is The Gospel According to Elijah and Elisha. So we'll be making some of those connections this morning. But uh, just to kind of further front load a little bit more, so these are the territories of Israel in the north and uh, Judah in the south. Israel has had nine kings by now. Jehoram is the ninth. He's the son of Ahab, brother of Ahaziah. And Jehoram would have known about all of the events that happened in his brother's lifetime, the events of Elijah, Elijah ascending. Um, even though it was uh, on the other side of the Jordan, it was still a very well known public event. Elisha, we'll see, was known to be a prophet of God. He would have known about Mount Carmel. He would have known about the death of his father according to the word of the Lord, the judgments pronounced against his father. He would have known about the death of his brother that happened according to the word of the Lord. And you you would imagine this is not a Gentile. He knows about the Exodus. He understands why nationally he would be an Israelite. These are all things that would have been known. And just to further add onto what he would know, that's easy to forget because of just how the kings were in Israel, Jehoshaphat is going to ally with the king of Israel in this chapter. Jehoshaphat was despite these incredible, unwise decisions that he was making to ally with Ahab's descendants in the north, Jehoshaphat was an incredible king. He was one of the greatest kings who ever lived in the territory of Judah. So the fact that he knows that he can call on the king of Judah for his aid, he would have known about the condition of Judah as well, spiritually. The kind of things that were happening to bring the nation back to God, And that leads us into chapter 3 and where we're going to begin the lesson. So 1 through 10 is where I'm going to start, but I'm going to start just 1 through 3. Pulls us into the reign of Jehoram and just has a couple things I want to note before we go through verse 10. So if you're not in there already, I would encourage you to read along in 2 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to set the scene and just try to see the events of this chapter as vividly as possible as we read through it. Uh, 1 through 3. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Uh, Look at the last verse of chapter 2. It will be right above chapter 3, obviously. Where did Elisha end up? Remaining at the end of the events in chapter 2, Samaria. Notice at the beginning of chapter 3, Jehoram was king over Israel at Samaria. Elisha is in the same city as Jehoram, which is very interesting. Throughout Elisha's life, we're going to see that the prophets were living in a in a much more free and liberated sense than they were in the times of Elijah. And they had a a lot more respect in the time of uh, Elisha compared to the time of Elijah as well. So it's worth noting. Um, But verse 2 is fascinating. Jehoram put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which is a distinct step in the right direction. But that only makes verse 3 even more interesting. So he had the sense to put away the pillar to Baal, which is one of the idols that Ahab and Jezebel had brought to Israel, but... He clung to the sins of Jeroboam, who was the first king after the split of the tribal territories who installed calves at Bethel and Dan. The idea of clinging, um, I think, is important to understand because you really don't need to cling to something if your grip is not in danger of being pulled from it. Like, if, if you're clinging to, like, something for safety... The reason you're clinging is because something is pulling you away from what is your source of safety. And in Deuteronomy, um, to make it more interesting, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, in Deuteronomy, over and over again, they're commanded to cling to the Lord. And it's in the context of things that could pull them away from serving God. So there's the sense of desperation. There's a sense of, of safety and security, acknowledging that God is your security and just being aware of the things that could pull your grip away from serving the Lord. And I think when you kind of put that together, I think the idea of verse 3 is Jehoram understood that he needed to put away these calf idols that Jeroboam had created, but refused to do it. That he had the sense to understand that that was the next step to take, but he would not let go. And I think the idea of clinging to something is, again, it's your source of power, it's your source of security or safety. And remember, Jeroboam installed those idols because he said that if those idols weren't made, the potential would be that the people of Israel would go to Judah and give their loyalty to Judah instead, right? So those idols became a a sense of, like, power and security for the kings of Israel. And even later, Jehu, who at first seems like a good king, just follows right along, and no king ever ends up destroying these idols that were the bane of Israel's existence, and Jehoram was no different. Now, I think there's, there's consequences of his refusal to obliterate those idols that we'll see throughout this chapter, so keep that, just keep that in mind. We'll read verses 4 through 10. Now, Misha king of Moab was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out to Samaria at that time, went out of Samaria, rather, at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horsemen is your horses. He said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Stop there. Uh, 1 Kings 22. Ahab wants to go to battle against Jabesh Gilead. The Assyrians were pushing in and were taking territory that did actually belong to Israel. And Ahab actually did something very similar. He called Jehoshaphat to give him aid. And foolishly, Jehoshaphat actually came and helped him. And even after a prophet said that Ahab was going to die in battle, and then after Ahab, hearing that, chooses to disguise himself, he tells Jehoshaphat, just you put on your royal garments, I'm going to disguise myself. And like, Jehoshaphat still goes (laughs) to battle, and they're about to kill him, but then God intercedes um, in the Chronicles account. So just really foolish and obviously was not wise. And yet, in verse 7, Jehoshaphat literally does the same thing and makes the exact same promise, which has an equal amount of foolishness, if not more so, because there's already evidence that helping the kings of Israel was not pleasing to the Lord already, right? So it's just, it's very strange, you know, that Jehoshaphat is such a good king otherwise, but then you have these very unusual commitments that he makes to help God's enemies, just worth worth noting as it goes on um into the account they have the king of edom with them and they go through the territory of edom and i just want to show that on the map here that um see i have like a red dotted thingy that i can point up there so uh they would have traveled south through judah Which, to travel through Judah, again, they would have seen the renovations that Jehoshaphat had been making in the prosperity of the nation. They go through the the territory of Edom. The idea is they're coming from the south and traveling north to then invade Moab. Um, And isn't it interesting with just the effort and the work, the mustering of forces? Can you imagine if Jehoram would have understood the damage that the idols were causing to his nation how the idols were actually the reason why he could not have success as a king can you imagine if he had invested this much effort to obliterate the idols of Israel you know it's amazing that the kings have so much passion so much fury when something more clearly in a self-serving kind of way is lost but when it comes to the things that God keeps pointing out, our perpetual thorns in the side of the success of the nation, there is no effort made at all toward those things, right? So I will say, though, 200,000, like, lambs and rams worth of stuff is a lot, right? But again, what the Lord was providing was literally everything that they had as a nation, right? So... Israel is hypocritically enraged against Moab instead of being willing to investigate their own sin. And just due to a lack of wisdom in verse 9, they end up making the seven-day journey and there's no water for them. And I think it's interesting, sorry, going back to um, the folly of the situation. In verse 10, who does the king of Israel blame for his own foolishness? Like, he doesn't admit his own mistake, he doesn't humble himself, He blames God. This is one of the principles we're going to return back to at the end of the lesson. Self-perceived, self-created needs give so much opportunity for blinded bitterness, especially against the Lord. We're going to return back to that at the end of the lesson. But instead of humbling himself for his own foolishness and taking responsibility for his decision, it's God's fault. You know, God's the one who's brought us together to kill us. And it's interesting that, it, and I think this is a part of both where destroying the Baal shrine had led him in a good way, but not destroying the idols of Jer- Jeroboam in a bad way led him. He understands God's sovereignty, he understands that God, by providence, can pull events together for his will, he understands that he's a victim to whatever God determines. I mean, that's that's a lot of good things to know about God, but yet in the midst of all of these correct things he knows about God, it's all being filtered through the wrong lens. And God is still put in the position of blame, despite all these things that he knows. And I think this is one of the evidences of the power of the idols in how Jehoram perceives God in this instance. So let's continue reading how God handles this, because this is very surprising verse 11. We're going to read all the way through uh, verse 20. This is God's gracious promise that he gives in response to Jehoram's foolishness. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? By the way, same question that Jehoshaphat asks in 1 Kings 22, uh, verse 12. Um, I'm sorry, middle of verse 11. And one of the kings of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. He said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop all the springs of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. It happened in in the morning about the time of the offering of of the sacrifice, of offering the sacrifice that behold, water came by the way of Eden or Edom and the country was filled with water. That does not turn out how I would expect This is really similar, by the way, to 1 Kings 20. It really is almost like Jehoram is reliving graciousness given to Ahab, both in the alliance with Jehoshaphat, but in 1 Kings 20, Ahab goes to battle against the Arameans, and God just, for no reason besides his own grace, gives him victory twice. And similar to what's going to happen here, every single time, every time, God graciously gives the kings of Israel victories it always turns out wrong in the end, every single time. It's never handled in a way that truly is appropriate for the will of God. So we'll see that in in a moment. Go back to verse uh, 11. Something really small in the text that's really easy to overlook. First of all, the servants of kings continuously save the day. We're going to see that through the life of Elisha. For instance, Naaman has a maidservant girl of Israel who ends up speaking up about Elisha being in Israel. But over and over again, we're going to see servants being the ones who acknowledge the prophets and their power. No different here. A servant ends up speaking up and saying, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is where? How long had they been traveling to get to where they are? Saying, Elisha is here. Think about that. Elisha had been traveling the whole time with this enormous force just there. I mean, just think about that, how unbelievable that is. Like, Elisha understands this is foolish. He understands that this battle is not to fulfill the Lord's purpose. He understands that the king of Israel is in deep rebellion against God and yet there he is amidst the forces just waiting to be inquired by. And notice in verse 12, they don't summon Elisha to come to them. They go down to him. And I think that's interesting. So you get these seeds of humility in their willingness to do that. But in verse 13, this is really important. The way that Elisha speaks to the king of Israel, I think, is important because the king has no right to God's message. None. In fact, not only does he not have a right in verse 14, he doesn't even deserve to hear it, and he shouldn't hear it. And that just amplifies that to just even hear the message is an act of unwarranted graciousness on God's part, and it's very important for the king of Israel to understand this. So, the minstrel, I want to talk about that too. Elisha seems a little agitated. (laughs) I mean, he tells uh, Jehoram pretty bluntly, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat here, like, there would be no message. You'd hear nothing. The minstrel, I think, is meant to convey that the message is not coming out of God's agitation. It's not coming out of Elisha's anger. It's not coming out of God's anger. This is a message of peace. It's a message of grace. And it's a message of kindness on God's part. So yes, God is angry with the king of Israel. Yes, Elisha has right to be upset with the king of Israel. But I mean, just look at the message. Not only does God say that you're going to be able to get the water you need to survive, but God is going to give you complete, total victory over Moab. And there's no requirement. He doesn't say, okay, and then, by the the way, when you're done and you get this victory, make sure that you destroy those calf idols. Or make sure that you start allowing the people to go to Judah and, like, bring the law back. None of that. This is just an act of incredible unwarranted unbelievable grace and I think a way to understand how incredible this is in Matthew chapter 15 you have a Syrophoenician woman a Gentile woman she comes to Jesus her daughter is terribly demon possessed she keeps appealing to Jesus to heal her daughter but if you remember the account Jesus can kind of seem like he's being cruel to this woman he says it is not right to give the bread that belongs to the children to the dogs and she says yes lord but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall off of the master's table you know what the most amazing thing about this account is to me god is the little dog the king of israel is just giving him a little crumb doesn't care about god there's no sign of true repentance in jehoram i mean destroying the pillar to baal should have been done it should never have been erected in the first place those calves were the problem and <laughs> just a servant mentioning the prophet and God gives this message, it's like, can you imagine having children who hate you, who cannot stand your presence, they abuse you when you talk to them, but the moment they give you the time of day, they'll even talk to you. You'll do everything that you possibly can to seize the moment. That's God here. Degrading himself, humiliating himself, just to find some opportunity to prove to the kings of Israel, even to the king of Edom, he wants to bless them. I would never have the kind of love to do anything like that for somebody like that. I think the more we appreciate how unworthy everybody involved in this story is, Jehoshaphat should be rebuked for even being involved in this mission. There's no rebuke present in God's words. It's just astonishing so think about what he, what he says. They were going to need to dig trenches. These were an already weary people who were going to do something wearisome to get water. And like nothing like this had ever really been done before. So imagine how ridiculous this could sound, but I think this gives indication to when somebody really becomes willing to listen to the word of the Lord. They were helpless. There was nothing they, could, they were out of options. There was nothing they could do of their own power. And if this was not an option there we're about to find out on the border of Moab by now and Moab the next day is going to mobilize their full force to come against them they were going to die all of them the king of Israel was going to die with all his people the king of Judah was going to die with all his people and the Edomites were going to die with all their people the king of Israel had done something so foolish he was going to cost three nations, their men, and their kings. And God just cleans up the mess. They were going to need to weary themselves, but focus on the promise. I think there's a key to obedience there. You remember when Jesus in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest take my my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You could think like, okay, he's calling the weary and heavy laden, but then he says, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, take up your cross every day and follow me. It's like, look, I'm already weary and heavy laden, Jesus. Like the last thing I want to add into my weariness is taking a yoke upon me and carrying a cross. But how you see Jesus's words and commands really shows how you understand your yourself in relation to him again think about the condition of these kings they were dead men the only hope they had was to follow the promise and they were going to need to dig those trenches in hope there is life on the other side of digging these ditches this was probably hundreds of thousands of people they were not going to just dig like a little hole in the ground this was going to be a massive undertaking but God would provide if they would listen, and they did. I mean, you look at verse 20. The country was filled with water. They got exactly what God promised, miraculously. God provided exactly what he had said. And that's the key thing. When we will put ourselves in the right heart condition and will humble ourselves and understand how dead we are without God's promises, we will do anything, anything he says, to get a hold of his promise. And we will absolutely every single time experience what God promises in ways that only fortify our love for him and our willingness to continue to obey him. But verse 21 starts to go uphill, but it goes downhill. So the last part of this is Israel's fierce wrath. Verse 21. Now all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned and stood on the border. They rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. Then they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together, and they have slain one another. Now therefore, Moab to the spoil. But when they, when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites, so that they fled before them, and they went forward into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. Thus they destroyed the cities, and each one threw a stone on every piece of good land and filled it, so they stopped all the springs of water and felled all the good trees until in Kir, here is only they left its stones. However, the slingers went about and struck it. When the king of Moab saw the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. So... One, one of the really interesting things about this, and I just want to put this into your mind, just think about this in a type sense. What I, what I mean by that is think about how this could relate to New Testament truth. The thing that God had given Israel for salvation, to restore them to life, what God had given them miraculously, what did not come of them, what was their salvation, was the very thing that was the death of their enemies. So for them, what was for life was for the Moabites for death. And in fact, it lured them into their defeat. And I think within that you have the story of the cross. But before we talk more about that, um, leading up to verse 25, it seems like everything's going like God had said it would. I mean, he told them before that they were going to destroy all the land and you know, they were going to strike all the trees and they were going to put stones on the land. And then in verse 26 and 27, it takes a really strange turn. The king of Moab becomes desperate. He tries to at least break through the king of Edom. He can't do it. And then he ends up sacrificing his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, on the wall publicly. And verse 27, the end of the verse, is a really strange, very ambiguous statement. It says, "...great wrath came against Israel." Nobody really knows what to do with that. Um, You can ask brethren, you can look at commentaries. It's just a really strange statement. Does that mean wrath came against Israel from Moab? Does that mean God's wrath came against them? Does that mean that maybe they were so horrified that the translation could be they were horrified by what they had seen and withdrawn? It's difficult to say, but I think the point is they had taken, by that point, they had taken what God had said way too far. They had taken it way too far. Think about, in Matthew chapter 18, the 10000 talent talent-debted man. Do you remember what happened in that account? King just freely forgave this 10,000-talent debt like an unbelievable, unthinkable amount of money. Forgives it. No no requirement. He didn't say, by the way, I'm going to forgive this, but make make sure you're thankful. You know, make sure you change your character and are really merciful to others. No. The act of grace inherent within it is the expectation of understanding, just inherent within it. So he goes out, 100 RI debted man to him. He like, he chokes him and he demands that he pay him when he can't do it, throws him in prison. The king finds out and says, should you not have had mercy on this man who, who owed you like nothing in comparison because I showed you so much mercy? And then that man ends up being tortured for what he had done. So listen, should not the kings of Judah, Edom, and Israel have understood something about the grace they had just received, how unworthy they were to have received that grace when Israel was an idolatrous nation? Edom was not even a nation associated with God except by lineage leading back to Jacob and Esau. the degree of salvation that God had given them if they had just thought about it do you think it could have motivated them to handle this differently and to show just a little bit more mercy in the situation right and I think therein lies the most important lesson of this account God's grace was doing nothing to change their hearts and so their liberty was out of control. That's where I want to move into applications for the lesson. I'm going to start with thinking about how we can humble ourselves in ways that the king of Israel did not. How can we learn from these events and ourselves respond the way they didn't? And it starts with assessing ourselves. No matter what God did for the kings of Israel, they were never willing to ever honestly assess their spiritual condition fully. Therein lies the grand problem of idolatry. We are serving idols, and it's evident we're serving idols, when we will never honestly assess ourselves in ways that lead to real fundamental change. Think about it like, the king of israel had done some things that led him closer to god i mean again he like he had an understanding of god he knew he was sovereign he knew that by providence he could cultivate circumstances together that could lead to the result that god desired and i mean he experienced god saving them through that water it was clearly miraculous it's very public he knew about the things that god had done in the past but yet Even with all of that, the change that he made was so incredibly short and limited. You know what's even worse? Jehoram dies in his sin. Later, Jehu will kill Jehoram and Ahaziah, king of Judah. Jehoram dies in his sin. Because he never was willing to be as critical with himself or extreme with himself as he was against the king of Moab. Therein lies the grandest problem of idolatry. So like I have on the board, what are you clinging to? What are you investing yourself the most in? What are you afraid of losing when you think of what God has really called you to be for his glory? For Jehoram, it was these calf idols that felt to him like they were his security as a king. But we can really make idols out of anything. And I think you know when something is your idol, when you're clinging to it, when you are totally unwilling to let it go, when you're convicted that there is a change that needs to be made, and yet you absolutely always refuse when it comes to that thing. And when that thing is your source of security and not the Lord. Anything can become an idol. Music, as silly as it is, music can be an idol movies can be an idol entertainment in general can be an idol video games can be an idol hunting can be an idol traveling can be an idol like we can literally make an idol out of anything work can become an idol things that even are good things of themselves we can turn into idols because we over invest at the expense of what God has called us to be investing ourselves in what you cling to is your idol and one last thing on this when you are sacrificing God's priorities for something else, that's when you know you have your idol. There's a brother who I love very dearly. He experienced a lot of uh, tragedies all at one time in his life, um, really not that long ago, I guess. And like everything was basically collapsing all around him. Um, People were dying who he loved very dearly. And I think there's some financial thing, just a lot of things just going on that were destabilizing his life completely. And somebody asked him how he was doing in the midst of all of this, and here's what he said. I'm still holding on to my Bible reading. To him, that's like that's all he had. It is such a tragedy when we have ease and freedom and we never read our Bibles. <laughs> When I was younger and in the process of falling away, and I I guess I, I had fallen away without visibly falling away, I played video games all the time, browsed the internet aimlessly all the time, and I never read my Bible or did anything spiritual by my own initiative. I went to church at every assembly, and I would read the Bible with my family, but my heart was so far away from God. Because entertainment was my idol. And by the time I was independent from my parents, I fell off the deep end completely because I had no sense of anchoring stability in my faith. I was serving idols, right? So we just need to honestly assess ourselves. What are we clinging to? Are there idols in our lives that are debilitating our ability to grow and be the people he's called us to be? Here's the other thing. Jehoram was totally wrong. When he said, God has called us together to kill us. We're all going to die. And that's what God wants. He was totally wrong. The problem is, self-defined needs and expectations create a blinded sense of bitterness. Most primarily against the Lord, but that can even happen relationally. right? Think about Israel in the the wilderness. (laughs) Psalm 78 especially touches on this. Israel had their own cravings in the wilderness. They got out of Egypt... They had their own cravings that they kept and they hated God and put him to the test all those 40 years because God was not meeting what for them was their own expectations that they were putting on God. And he could never fully please them. It was never enough. Look, if there's somebody in your life who's trying to serve you and yet it seems like it's never enough and you keep finding ways to like harbor some ill feeling against them, you are serving idols. That's why Jehoram had this false sense of expectation of God. It was the idols he was serving. When you think about Israel in the wilderness, their own comfort was their idol. They said, we had leeks in Egypt, so we need to go back. Leeks, by the way, are like a little vegetable plant. And God called Egypt an iron furnace. Can you imagine if there was a furnace of iron? And you thought, well... I mean, if there's vegetables in there, I'll jump in. I mean, it's madness, right? But that's the thing is idolatry blinds us to what we have, to what God is doing, who God is, the glory of his character, all his generosity, and then it's like it's never enough. We can never be motivated to really serve him or love him or please him or honor him or sacrifice for him because if God would just do so much more for me, maybe then I'll be motivated, right? We've got to be careful about our own sense of independent judgment. Turn to James chapter 4. I'll just read you one passage on this. James chapter 4. <clears throat> uh, James four eleven and 12. It says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge and the one who is able to serve, save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Accounts like this, I think, are meant to rip us out of thinking that we are good judges of anything. Like, a part of humbling ourselves is realizing I do not have the sense or wisdom to be a judge of anything or anybody. I have got to let God be the judge of all things. I've got to totally recalibrate my view of everything and let God redefine everything in my life. Because Jehoram was totally wrong, 100%. And his view of God did not even change when God gave him a miraculous victory. We've got to let go of self-defined needs and expectations, our own sense of judgment. And Finally, I think one of the most important ways that we must humble ourselves in God's grace is letting God's grace guide and control our liberty. Turn to First Peter chapter two. Um, so. This point is related to the fact that when God gave Israel the liberty to win this battle, they took that liberty way too far. There was no sense of boundary or control or any sense of remembering what God had just done for them and how unworthy they were, how helpless they were, and yet how God had shown them so much mercy. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 16. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You know what's in evidence of idols in your life? God's grace does nothing to touch your sense of liberty. Verse 16, all around this, Peter is saturating the reader with the knowledge of God's grace salvation, a new identity, a redeemed purpose, the value of Jesus being given to take us to God. 21 through the end of the chapter he talks about Jesus' suffering being an example for us, an evidence of idolatry and that we need to repent and humble ourselves. God's grace is not leading me to be a bond slave willingly. I'm taking my freedom and I'm guiding it by my own judgment. If grace is not guiding your daily chore, task, work, school, free time, whatever. If you have these huge chunks of who you are and and how you live that are empty of God's grace, you have got to let God touch those areas of your life that he has not. Those are your idols. And you know, without understanding God's grace, it sounds so extreme and unreasonable. You know, you imagine, like, Meshav Joram would have turned around like, man, God expects me to do something? Like, I don't get to have total victory over Moab? Like, pfft, what a joke. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, think about the 10,000 talent that man again. Like, showing mercy to someone who owes you a 100 denarii, is it really that unreasonable for that to be expected? Is that really so extreme? When we don't understand God's grace, the call Of obedience that can only be done by grace will always seem like a chore. Just like making those trenches, if they would not have understood their need for the promise, why bother? You're already tired, you're already thirsty, and you're gonna make trenches of all things, God's grace at that moment was guiding their perspective and their obedience. So, what dictates your view of God? What dictates your view of yourself? That's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. Um, As an invitation, just going back to the king of Moab sacrificing his son as like an act of utter desperation. Did you know that that's what God has done for us? And like when we understand how horrifying and unreasonable that was, because of the liberty that God gives us by Jesus, an act of sheer desperation on God's part to get us to stop, to halt, to stop in our tracks. He openly and he publicly offered his son as an offering to get us to be put at rest with our aggression against him. If that won't horrify us, God's got nothing else that can persuade us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, God will hold you accountable for the death of his son fully, and you will have no answer for it. But if you're willing to humble yourself, God is freely offering promises of salvation so incredible, so precious. They're yours to take today. If there's anything that can be made known before the church at this time, make it known when we stand and sing. Invitation song.